You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen, amen. So good to be together. Love to be with you so much. It's so good. If you could open your Bibles to James 4, that would be also a blessing. James chapter 4, if you're in overflow, welcome today. Watching online, bless you. Just uh, again, I want to say hi to Orangeville. Tuning in for the second week officially. So glad you're doing that as well. So James chapter 4, just before we get there, I want to make you aware of a special event happening, not in our church, but connected to our church. Compassion Canada is a very, very dear ministry to this church. It has been from the beginning. Uh, we would sponsor, as a church, well over 1,200, 1,300 kids, maybe more now, um, all around the world. We believe in Compassion Canada, their love for the local church, their love for the gospel, doing such powerful, powerful ministry again across this world. So they're hosting a Mother's Day luncheon. You can see that on May 14th. Um, it is just up here at the Burlington Convention Center. And this ministry is designed to reach women across this world that are pregnant and they're in very, very difficult spots. And instead of them going through an abortion or doing something, again, awful with the child in the womb, um, this is a ministry coming alongside to help them, support them, love them, equip them, and allow them to give birth and then to care for the child as it goes forward. So really, really important grassroots, major stuff happening here, changing the story, particularly of single moms, again, across the world. So um, because we love Compassion Canada and there's a generous donor in our church, there's a real heart for this ministry, um, they have subsidized the um, venue and all the food for the luncheon, which means that if you decide to go, it could be a wonderful, again, Mother's Day, Mother's uh, Weekend idea, and if you go, then every dollar is going to be spent towards this ministry of reaching women who are pregnant, that their babies might be born, and they could see a chance to live in Jesus Christ and have a healthy, strong life, okay? So just so you're aware of that, we're very, very big on this, and commend that to you. Maybe that's something you're going to do as a family instead of maybe something else in previous years as a wonderful way to be encouraged. Um, the information, again, will be online for us, and Compassion Canada has that uh, as well, just so you guys, and again, we're excited to get behind that ourselves. Well, I'm pumped for our time together, and I want to get after it. Let's go right to our sermon title today. Lots to get through. Our sermon title is Seven Steps to Receive God's Blessing. Seven Steps to Receive God's Blessing. Now, I must admit, I'm a little cautious using sermon titles like that. Normally, I would not do that. Why? Um, because I can't stand easy believism in the church and certainly cannot stand any hint of prosperity gospel as well. It's not biblical. It's false teaching. It ruins lives. When we hear such sermon titles, we often, seven steps to receive God's blessing, often we interpret as, how can God bless me on my terms? That's kind of how we interpret that. Uh, what can I do so God will bless me in the things I want? How God can bless me in my terms? How God can bless me in my ways? It's often too kind of interpreted as a religious formula towards worldly prosperity, right? So much teaching across this world takes the name of Jesus and then uh, falsifies it and says, hey, if you believe this, then God will make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. Again, do this formula and then you'll get things that um, aren't really part of God at all. But what our sermon title actually means today is this, according to our text, how God wants to bless me on his terms and in his ways. And that's a big difference between my ways and my wants, between God's ways and what God says and on his terms. As it turns out in our passage, the blessing of God comes to us as we become less and we are broken over our sin. 
That is what the Bible is going to explain to us. And the more broken we can be over our sin, the more we are aware of God's grace, and then the more we are blessed, again, within our lives. This is so key today too, right? When it comes to blessing, we have to define blessing on God's terms, right? Often we say, God, I want you to bless me, but we have our own definition of blessing. And our definition of blessing is often very far away from God's actual definition of blessing. We're like, God bless me with more stuff. God bless me with perfect health. God bless me with more money. God bless me with a better situation, whatever it might be. And those things actually are maybe are not anywhere near God's will, What is the biblical definition of blessing? One word, one word. The biblical definition of blessing is God. God is the blessing. We have to understand that. If we truly want to be blessed, then we want God. We want Jesus Christ. We want the Holy Spirit. More of God means more blessing in our lives because God, by its very definition, again, he is satisfaction and he is blessing. We miss that a lot. There's a lot of things we do. We're asking things from God. We don't actually want him. We just want the things maybe we think he'll give us. That's an improper biblical way to go about that. I mean, God is certainly kind and generous, but at its very core, God is the blessing himself. So last week we ended on James 4, 6. Let's start there again today. Look at verse 6. It says, But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice grace or blessing is mentioned twice there. So a very natural question is, he gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. You say, I want to see more of that. Um, I'd like to see more of that, more of him within my life. And we would say, well, what do I do then? Uh, How does this happen? That's exactly what James explains next within our text. He provides seven steps to receive God's blessing in God's ways and on God's terms, okay? And by the way, as we go through these seven steps too, it's not so much works, of course. There's things we need to do in direction we must go. What's happening today? It's really wisdom. God is saying, here is the path of wisdom. When you follow God's path of wisdom, you will be blessed. You will see more of God in your life. You'll experience more grace in your life. You'll see more joy in your life because you'll have more of God in your life. So it's not so much works as it is wisdom. Loved ones, it's wisdom. Man, when you follow the path of wisdom in Christ, you will see the blessing of God upon your life. It's a very, very important day, by the way. It's a very important day that we think clearly of what God is saying. Like, let's not be smarter than God. You do what he says and you will be blessed. You follow his ways, and you will know again his working within your life. It's amazing how quickly we can come off this, and we think again that we should give God counsel on how he should do things. No, no, Lord, please, not today. So James 4, take a look at verse 7, okay? So, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen, church? Amen. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is never afraid to be blunt, is he? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Whoa. And your joy to gloom. Ouch. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law, because you've made yourself above the law is what he's saying, But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one, though, lawgiver, and only one judge is God. He who is able to save 
and to destroy, it says this, but who are you? Who are you, O cocky one, to judge your neighbor? All right, so seven steps to receive God's blessing. We're gonna move quickly today because I'm not preaching a two-hour sermon and you all said praise the Lord, all right? There's no way that's happening today. So we're gonna move through quickly because the text moves things quickly to seven steps. Step number one, if we want to receive God's blessing is this, I must submit myself to God. I must submit myself to God. If I want to receive God's blessing in my life, I must submit myself to God. Now notice that verse seven there is the immediate response to verse five where I want to, if I want to combat worldliness, worldliness is wrecking my life, I want to combat that. Submit yourself to God. Also verse seven is the direct response to verse six where it says we want to pursue humility. How do I pursue humility? Submit yourself to God. Submitting yourself to God is very, very, very powerful. Biblical submission is beautiful. Beautiful. It's the voluntary, voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of God. Think about that. Submission to God is one of the great signs of humility in our lives. It is absolutely essential to knowing God's blessing. To submit to God is to trust his ways. Think about this foundationally. To submit to God is to trust his character. To submit to God is to say, God, you're smarter than I am. Amen. To submit to God is to say, I believe in your wisdom. So one of the things I try to say to myself often, believing again in this theology, God, your will is the best will in my life. Therefore, I want your will. I want you to think about that. You find yourself in a very tough situation. You find yourself in a place you would not choose. You find yourself in a circumstance where you're like up against it and you don't know what it's going to bring. It is so powerful in the midst of those moments to say out loud to God in good theology, applying it to your life, I believe fundamentally, God, your will is the best will for my life. You are smarter than me. You know what's best for me. You love me. You have my best interest in mind. I don't get this, but your will is the best will, therefore I submit to your will. That's powerful. That is simple, but that is profound. And how often, this is Christ himself, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. The ability to submit to God and say, God, again, you understand, you are perfect in knowledge and wisdom. You love me and you believe, again, you are orchestrating events for my greatest good. Powerful, powerful stuff to be able to say, again, I trust you essentially. What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of, of, of submitting to God? Complaining against God, it is fighting against God and being obstinate to God's commands. We, we rail against the things of God and we try to become God instead. And that brings misery upon our lives. I think one of the greatest biblical examples of this in the positive is Abraham with his son Isaac. And you know the story of Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah, and then there they are, and, and God's like, I want you to take your son, I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. And Abraham in his extraordinary faith at that moment, and he's walking up to the altar with his son Isaac. Isaac, little boy, you can imagine the things going through each of their minds. And Isaac turns to his dad, hey dad, where's the sacrifice for this? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide, son. You can imagine in Abraham the questions he must have had. And as he walked there, I mean, just what a conversation to have with him in glory. And say, Abraham, tell me about what you were feeling and going through at that moment. But he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord and submitted to the things of God. 
And then sure enough, the Lord did provide. He provided again, and the ram was stuck in the thicket, and then the, the sacrifice was made. And listen, listen, the untold blessing that resulted from the life of Abraham and then Isaac and all of us, in a sense, through Jesus Christ, if we're saved, are here today through the obedience and faith, again, of this man before God. But in the moment, man, I don't get it, but Lord, I submit to you because you know more than I do. You can see perfectly. I cannot. The power of God's blessing of submitting to him. I wonder right now in your life, Where is God asking you to submit in a situation you cannot see, you do not understand, and maybe you would not choose? It is the first, in some ways, the most important step of seeing the blessing of God enter into our lives. Remember, 1 John 5, the commandments of God are not burdensome. He doesn't command things from us to uh, annoy us or to bug us or to bring us down. He commands us because he knows what's best for us. The ways of God are the blessing of God. God, help us. I must submit myself to God. Number two, I must resist the devil. If I want to see God's blessing, I have to obviously fight against sin and temptation and the work of the devil in my life. So verse seven, notice, again, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, so note this, okay? One of the greatest ways we resist the devil is by submitting to God. They always go together. Okay, So when I submit to God, I automatically begin to resist the devil because I'm trusting in the Lord, I'm pursuing God, and that puts up, again, protection against the work of the devil within um, our lives. When we align ourselves with the Lord, again, we automatically resist the devil. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, before we can stand against Satan, we must bow before God. Okay, that's powerful to think about that. I humble myself, I worship the Lord. And as I do that, I start to resist again against the evil one. Loved ones, always remember, one of our greatest weapons is worship. The adoration and faith and love for Jesus Christ, such a powerful weapon in our lives is genuine worship. Resist the devil, the text says. The word resist here literally means to take a stand or to set against. So there's a tremendous intentionality of withstanding against an enemy here. Resist the devil. Be alert, watchful. Uh, Don't fall asleep. Um, I'm, I'm one, I recently um, started watching some more World War II documentaries. They, they, they fascinate me. I go through the streets. I love history. Um, I love watching these documentaries. I find it so humbling. Uh, we had uh, relatives on both sides of our family that fought in the war. Um, it's humbling. There's so much perspective. Gratitude fills my heart. And just amazement of what happened only like 70 years ago. It just blows my mind. And I'm watching these World War II documentaries, and I was reminded again the absolute effort, in this case, when I was watching the British and the Allies to defend the United Kingdom as Nazi Germany came and attempted to try to obliterate and destroy that land. And it was kind of the, the, the last remaining stronghold, again, of the Allies, it seemed, at that time. And the effort that the Allies went to to defend against Nazi Germany, like the extraordinary manpower, the money, the years of planning, the sacrifice, the uh, genius, again, uh, systems they developed, all to withstand and not let Germany advance onto their land. Just extraordinarily amazing to watch. That's what it means to resist. You'll do anything, and, and, and you can easily argue that that resistance at the early parts of the war saved the war as a whole, if that would have been given over in the early days, maybe there'd be no chance at all. 
the power of resisting the enemy and standing against the devil. We must have a resolve to resist in the strength and grace provided for us in Jesus Christ. Again, how many times the Bible says, hey, be watchful, be sober-minded, be alert, stand ready at your guard, watch your heart with all vigilance. Let me ask you, where are your defenses vulnerable today? You have to know this. Again, part of the wisdom of God is you know where you're susceptible to the workings of Satan. He knows. He studies you. He's looking for weakness. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He knows where you're vulnerable. Do you know where you're vulnerable? Many examples we can take today how the enemy is getting in and Satan is ruining, ruining lives. One example right now, okay, the stats are in. The studies have been made without question. Again, irrefutable in this example in regards to social media and young people, okay? Specifically young girls, The studies are in, parents, grandparents, young people right now. It is absolutely conclusive. The absolute damage and destruction that is occurring, particularly in the hearts, lives, and minds of young women, like early teens, exposed to the devastation of many social media apps. Okay, so like, again, you don't have to wonder if this is happening, it's 100% happening. And so many young girls' lives and boys, but particularly the young girls' lives are being killed in in the deception and the evil that occurs as their minds and hearts and just unable to handle again all that they're participating in. So that's why we have four children, we have two girls, turning 14, turning 12. Our girls do not have social media. Because again, the wisdom of our day, just saying, listen, and I think over the years, when all their friends do all kinds of stuff, but I believe that they believe with Jill and I, that I believe our girls believe we're not trying to be annoying parents. We're not trying to just kind of make a grumpiness upon their lives. We're not trying to make them feel left out. I believe at this point, they believe that we're actually trying to love them. I believe through multiple conversations that they believe as much as they might feel there's missing out times like that, at the end of the day, we are doing this for their own good. One of the greatest ways Satan is getting in is through these devices and parents have no clue and they're coming in and the confusion, devastation, and hopefully, I don't need to tell you much more, this is a massive problem. We must resist. We must resist with wisdom to build around the defenses as best we can with prayer and grace. Nothing's foolproof but to do our best to protect that which is most dear and closest to us because the enemy is looking. There is not one percentage of him that is good. The only thing he wants to do is absolutely destroy your life, your marriage, your family, your church, whatever it is. He just wants you to be dead. And so we must resist. And notice the promise this year, resist the devil and he will flee. Resist the devil, and the promises is that he will flee. Now remember, one of the greatest tactics of Satan is to get between us and God. Remember, the one thing he wants to do is to separate us from God. He wants to distract us. He wants to discourage us. He wants to deceive us. He wants to destroy us. He will do anything he can to get your affection separated from the Lord. Your affection to the world, your affection to stuff, your affection to money, your affection to things, your affection to your own position, whatever it is. Anything to get between you and God. And Satan loves that. We must resist the devil. And the thing is, when we double down in submission to God and resisting the devil, he gets frustrated. And the Bible promises us he flees. Now, 
he will return. It's like Christ in the, in the wilderness. And the devil left him in, until an opportune time. But the devil gets frustrated because he wants to see success. He wants to prey on the weak. And he comes against a, a woman of God. He comes up against a man of God. And there they are. And their defenses are in place. And they're resisting. It frustrates him. And he leaves. I can't get to that person. He might return again. But at that time, he can't get to that. That's what the Bible says right here. It's, it's pretty encouraging and pretty awesome. It comes with a man or woman who wants the blessing of God to resist the devil that we might see and experience the grace and love and mercy of God upon our lives. We must resist at all costs. The greatest way Satan gets into our lives and heart in our day is lust, entertainment, laziness, jealousy. Resist, loved ones. Resist. Build your life of wisdom, wisdom of defenses, and wisdom of affection for God and submission to him. Step number three. I must draw near to God. If I want to know his blessing, this is a big one. I must draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now listen up here, okay? So drawing near to God is the very essence of blessing. Because as we've said already, because God is blessing. So the closer I draw to God, the more of his blessing then automatically fills my life. Resist the devil, run to God. It's amazing that All of life really hinges on this command right here to draw near. All of life hinges on this command. Notice that God rewards those who seek him. He is found by those who, again, pursue him. So if we truly want blessing in our lives, then we want God. Here's the question, though. Here's the question. For all those who profess to follow Christ... If we really want blessing, then we want God. The question is, do we really want God? Do we really want God? Do our lives prove that we want God more than anything else? How many professing believers in Jesus Christ spend little to no time with God. Problem. That's a problem. We say one thing, we live another. God says, draw draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God is the essence of blessing. How many professing believers spend little time with God in the pursuit of him? No wonder there's not a lot of evidence of God's blessing. Because without God, there will be no true blessing. You think Jesus did not come and be tortured on a cross to bear the wrath of God and to take on the punishment for our sin, to open the curtain from top to bottom, to pro- provide an entrance way to God. Jesus did not give his life in this horrific way and all the stuff he did so that we can draw near to our devices. He didn't do that. He didn't sacrifice himself so we can draw near to more entertainment. He didn't do that. The reason he came and died horrifically and gave his life upon the cross is that we would draw near to him. And that is the essence of blessing within our lives. I'm telling you, we have to let our theology become our practice. We have to let what we say we believe become part of our behavior. See, fundamentally, we know Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing, right? We've said this again and again and again. I mean, I read this morning, Psalm 34, in my readings, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
when you have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, nothing in this world can satisfy. You might try to scrounge at the scraps of the world and you might feed on them a little bit, but when you tasted the Lord, the things of the world, you're like, that's gross, man. That does not satisfy. And then you realize only Jesus Christ, only he can truly satisfy. He's the blessing. He is the actual blessing. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Step number four to know God's blessing. I must cleanse my hands and heart. Where do you get that from, Robbie? Well, God's word, of course. Verse eight. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay? So notice here, James is not afraid to be pejorative with his language towards his readers. He calls them bluntly sinners and double-minded. So evidently, there are some serious sins occurring, again, among his audience. Now, why does James, why does he lovingly go after them in this way, sinners, and calls them double-minded? Because James knows this, right? His theology is so strong, obviously. James knows, loved ones, that the number one stifling of God's blessing in our lives is sin. The number one thing that gets in the way of God's blessing in our lives in increasing measure is sin. So that is why then a church, listen so carefully, a church that doesn't take on sin on some level forfeits God's blessing. A church that refuses to preach the word as James has done all throughout this letter and go after sin is a church that will forfeit the blessing of God. I met with a pastor friend this week. He's connected to um, um, a denomination and many uh, churches in his denomination, formerly strong, are, are closing they're shutting their doors. He's strong. He's faithful. Love is hard. Love where he's at. I said, tell me what's happening there. He goes, because they're all being so weak on sin. They're trying to be liked by the culture. They're moving towards the affirming thing all over the place. They're getting so liberal in their theology and they think it's going to grow their church, but it's emptying out their church because you go soft on sin and the Holy Spirit stops showing up. You have to understand again, if you go soft on sin, you forfeit God's blessing within your life. So over the years, right, almost 20 years strong now, over the years, usually at least once a weekend, I've said this many times, someone gets up and leaves during the sermon, right? Like they're not going to the bathroom, you know what I'm saying, right? Coat, purse, everything, leaving. And they look pretty grumpy as they're doing so, okay? Sometimes I'm the problem. Sometimes it's me and I have to keep working on that and being grace and truth. But quite often I look down, it's because we started to preach on sin, and people are like, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me to change. No, no, don't you tell me I'm a sinner. I'm like, I always say, it's not my words, it's God's word. God's word. God's word. I'm always doing that. And we will not apologize for what God says. But here's the thing, God knows. If we don't get after sin, we will never know the fullness of his love. There is no appreciation of mercy and grace with understanding why you need it in the first place. James knows this. He's like, hey, sinners. He calls them that. I should say that more, shouldn't I? Eh? I'm probably too easy on you guys, right? He's like, hey, sinners. And he's like, you double-minded, right? You gotta mourn. You gotta cleanse your hands and purify your heart if you want the blessing of God. God desires clean hands, and a pure heart. Notice, notice clean hands, external cleansing. Notice pure heart, internal purity. External acts of sin repented of. Internal false motives and pride repented of. Look at, look at Psalm 24 here. Just such a great parallel text here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
there's this wonderful British preacher that's on this revival hymn, and he, he quotes this verse, and so, I, I always want to go into the British accent, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But it's so powerful when he does it. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Look, look, look. Clean hands and pure heart. That's who. That's who. That's who will stand with the Lord. A clean hands and a pure heart. God knows what he's talking about, right? Does not let the soul toward his false. Does not swear deceitfully. Look, look, here's the promise. Just like our text. He or she will receive the blessing of the Lord. I want God's blessing, then you want clean hands. I want God's blessing, then you want a pure heart. If we're not dealing, willing to deal with sin, we will not see the blessing of God within our lives. We can't, because the number one thing that quenches God's spirit and stifles his blessing is unchecked sin in our lives and our hearts. James knows this. That's why he says we're just going through what God's word says right now. How is the Lord asking you today to wash your hands and purify your heart? What sin have you brought in even today? What sin last night? What sin this week? What, what, what internal sin of pride, jealousy, bitterness, envy, greed? What is there that needs to be on the table and stabbed to death in Jesus' name? And mortifying our sin, Romans 8. We're at war, church. We're at war for the blessing of God to be seen in our lives. Again, you just kind of live through this life and we're lukewarm and taking everything casually. It's just not going to happen. And notice step five is connected to step four. I must mourn over my sin. Look at verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow. So why is he saying that kind of stuff? Well, our context, right, James has pointed out among his readers Serious sins of bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition, fighting, division, quarreling, murder, hatred, double-mindedness, and adultery or idolatry against God. So James is like, hey, uh, some of the people he's writing to, they were looking at their sin and laughing, treating it casually, being so arrogant. They're just kind of like, you know, pushing it off. It's not a big deal. He's like, no, 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 no. You're so in the wrong. How dare you be so arrogant? How dare you be so cocky? You can't laugh at the sin that grieves the very heart of God. Stop laughing, he's like, church. You shouldn't be laughing about your sin. You should be mourning over your sin. It's hurting you so much. Grieve over the hardness of your heart. That's what he's saying here. Be wretched and mourn. Stop acting like you know everything. Stop acting like it doesn't matter. Stop acting like God, God doesn't see or doesn't care. Stop behaving that way. It's the, it's the epitome of arrogance. Spitting in the face of God. Sitting Jesus, right, so closely. James, half-brother of Jesus, their teachings are so closely aligned. Let's go to Luke 6 here. Luke 6, and where Jesus says this, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Okay, so... That's a beatitude Jesus gives. And essentially, Jesus is saying, listen, for those who weep over sin right now and are contrite over the brokenness and how you grieve the heart of God, he's like, you mourn now, but the moment Jesus Christ returns, you will see Jesus Christ coming in the cloud of glory. And at that point, you will laugh, you will rejoice, and you will exult, and you will never weep again because you belong to Jesus Christ. You took your sin seriously now, and you will be forever set free of that for eternity. But then Jesus says, but woe to you who laugh now, Woe to you who take sin so lightly. Woe to you, culture of our day, that mocks the commands of God, that spits in the face of Christ, that trivializes sin that God takes very, very seriously of eternal implications. Woe to you, because the moment Christ returns, you won't be laughing, you'll be weeping. Revelation 1, you will mourn and weep at the coming of the Son. Because at that moment when Jesus Christ returns, all that they 
all that they live for and all the temporary fulfillment and pleasure of the day, so much of it's sexual in nature, all of a sudden that evaporates in an instant. And then in the face of Jesus Christ returning, you begin to weep and wail because now you have to stand in judgment and in accountable to the Son of God, the Lord of glory. See, so there's so much wisdom here. The wisdom is, man, I, I mourn over my sin now, but eternity I will be rejoicing forever. See, one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom is this. It's, it's, it's the more broken I am in my sin, then the more blessed I become. I want you to think about that for a second, okay? The more, the more broken I am in my sin, the more I am aware of the grace of God within my life. I think one of the greatest examples of this in the Gospels is Luke 7 and the sinful woman. She is there. We bring this up a lot. I love this passage so much. And she is there and she's utterly devastated, likely a prostitute, utterly devastated in her sin, but absolutely overcome by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to the point that she weeps tears upon the feet of Jesus, wipes uh, the tears off the feet with her hair. She is so devastatedly broken. The Pharisees are standing at a distance judging her. And then remember the main point that Jesus teaches within that story, that beautiful, beautiful story. He's like, she has been forgiven much, so therefore she loves much. She is so aware of her grace and her brokenness that she is so overcome by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Her brokenness led to an extraordinary display of gratitude and grace and love and affection the Pharisees are staying there, and Jesus is like, you did nothing for me. Since I came in, nothing to drink, did not wash my feet, did not care, have done nothing. And the point he's making is because you're not broken, you're not aware of how you've been forgiven. But this lady right here who you're judging and despising, she's so brokenness, but she's never been more aware of the grace and love and mercy and joy that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the power of mourning over sin. And I think even to us today, okay? Speak to men, but not just men only. But I think men often have a hard time in our pride of receiving brokenness. I think often we're so afraid of being vulnerable. We're afraid of having even any sense of emotion being displayed. We're, we're tough. We don't allow people. And the women are like this too. It can be the same way as well. But just for a moment here, I just want to urge and apply men today your ability and willingness to be broken over your sin will explode in a waterfall of God's grace upon your life. And I wonder, just in the coming days or maybe even coming minutes, there'd be an ability to want to be vulnerable before Jesus Christ and allow brokenness to start to trickle down that we might mourn over sin to see the cross of Jesus Christ and never be more aware of all that he's done for us. There are few things more beautiful and precious than a broken person that sees the grace of God pouring over their lives and hearts. If you want to see God's blessing, you have to pursue brokenness. There's no exceptions. Men, there's no exceptions. Women, there are no exceptions. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. And right here, mourning, mourning over sin. Step number six, I must humble myself before the Lord. I must humble myself before the Lord. Look at, look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
So good. So our context again is people or leaders, they were fighting with each other. They're fighting for position. They're fighting for prominence. They're fighting for power. And James was like, stop it. You're being fools. Stop it already. James now says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. By the way, Paul says this. Jesus says this multiple occasions. And Peter also says this, what James says here as well. They're all saying it all throughout the New Testament. The power of humility before Christ and the trust of God exalting. So I remember um, my wife Jill shared this with me many years ago. I've I've used it in teaching times uh, many, many times since. I love this one. So if we take 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, very close to James 4 here, 10, okay? 1 Peter 5, 6, 7. Humble yourself, look, look, look. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. This space right here, this is the space of blessing in our lives. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. What we do when we're full of pride and we get impatient, we say, I'm tired of waiting to be exalted. I'm going to exalt myself. God's like, when you do that, you get out from under my protection and now you are susceptible to attack and you get obliterated because you're no longer under my mighty hand. So many young people do that. So many men and women do that. We're impatient. We want God's will. We want it now. We force our way out under his protection. And then we're on the onslaught of the enemy and temptation that comes upon our lives. And so many lives get ruined because of that. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, 1 Peter 5, he will exalt you. And when God exalts you, this is what happens. The space goes with you. He exalts, but his protection's in place. This is the power, sweet spot, and place of wisdom for life. So how many young people are like, I want to be used. That's great. That's great. Me too. Hey, I want my gifts to be used. That's great. That's great. That's a wonderful thing, man. I want it to happen right now. Well, can't promise that. I'm not going to wait for God. Well, well you got to be really careful. My heart's in a great place. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because listen, God is more interested in using your gifts than you are. But God is most interested in a heart that's ready. And he will not exalt you until your heart is prepared to withstand the temptations that will come your way as he does exalt. See, so this is where, this is where you're like, God, I want and, and I'm really excited about this, but at the end of the day, you, you're smarter than me. This is one of the most freeing principles of leadership I've ever found, where you can rest under the mighty hand of God, and God will do what God will do when he wants to do it. I have to be faithful where I am, faithful to where he has placed me right now. At the proper time, he will exalt. And that is a huge step to the blessing of God because it's submission to God. It's drawing near to God. It's trusting God. It's allowing God to do what only God can do with wisdom and faith. Lastly, step number seven. If I want to see God's blessing, I must not speak evil or judge a brother or sister. It's interesting he kind of goes to this point right here too, but James has really been big on evil speech, eh? Like all throughout James 3, like the tongue is a, a, a world of fire or a world of unrighteousness. And look at verse 11. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters, Because the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's like, hey, the law of God fundamentally is love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's the royal law, James calls it. When you speak evil against a brother, you're placing yourself over and above the law. You are speaking evil. You are judging the motives. You are placing yourself in moral superiority over another person. You are making yourself God and judge. You are over the law now because you've just broken it. And now you become judge over the heart of another individual. He's like, you don't want to do that, man. There's only, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. This just in, it's not us. It's God. But who are you? He says, almost sarcastically, who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, the seriousness of speaking evil and judging another person in a sense of moral superiority. Now, let me be clear. Are we to make moral judgments? Absolutely yes. The Bible is chock full of we discerning between good and evil, looking at what's in front of us. That's good, that's not. That's a blessing, that's evil. That's of the Lord, that's of Satan. We are to make moral judgments. That's not what this is talking about. People say, can't judge, can't judge, can't judge. No, 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 we are to judge, but we're not to judge sinfully, evilly, harshly, presenting ourselves as moral superiors to other people, condemning them, ripping them to shreds, tearing them down, speaking evil of their character. That's vastly different than making a biblical moral judgment. And that's what James is saying right here. If you want to put it in a context, you might understand as well, when Jesus teaches in Matthew 7 of, hey, before you examine the speck in your brother's eye, make sure you see the log in your own, okay? That's kind of what we're talking about right here. People walk around with a massive log in their eye, and they're judging others who have a speck. He's like, you don't want to do that. That's not humility, and that's not going to bring God's blessing upon your life. Again, the emphasis of James here on speech and tongue and the devastation it brings when it's done for evil. So remember, like the context, many people are bitter, jealous, envious, fighting, and they were giving Satan a foothold in their lives. So if we want to see God's blessing in your life, listen, bottom line it, stop speaking evil of others. If you want to see God's blessing, stop ripping people to shreds. Stop, stop gossiping. I hate gossip. It just ruins lives, marriages, families, churches, and leaderships. Listen, if you're here right now and like your thing's gossip, man, please stop. Like just stop it. Repent. If you're here and your motive is just to tear other people down. Remember we learn in James 3, 2, often when gossip and slander is within our lives, it's not about another person. It's because we're just jealous. We're so dissatisfied with where we are and because Christ is not our treasure. We want things for ourselves. It's, it's really us. We're the problem. And so we try to tear people down to join us in our misery. If you're in this church, man, and again, and you want to walk around gossiping, just, just repent. Like, be changed in Jesus Christ. Stop it. If you're here to slander people, if you don't have the courage to go to the individual who's wronged you, Matthew 18, and brother to brother, sister to sister, it's amazing how seldom that happens. Deal with it straight up. Love them with truth, but graciously. The devil has a heyday wrecking churches through individuals that go around seeking to Sow those seeds of division and enmity and, and envy and jealousy and slander. We all know situations, way too many of them, where that's happened again and again and again. In Jesus' name, Lord, please not hear. In Jesus' name, Lord, rid us of that.
cleanse us of such things that we might know the blessing of God. So as we just wrap up here, I think we have the full outline. Do we have the full outline here? I just want you to see this as we look at this. There's a lot here today. I told you I wouldn't preach for two hours. You're welcome. You're welcome. But look at all of this, loved ones. I want you to see all of this is the pathway to wisdom, which ultimately is the pathway to Jesus Christ. All of this is the pathway to Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Well, because Jesus Christ is absolutely awesome. Jesus Christ is Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ holds the keys to death in Hades. Jesus Christ is purpose. Jesus Christ is satisfaction. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is life over death. Jesus Christ is the guarantee of hope for the eternal life to come. Jesus Christ is beautiful. Jesus Christ is forgiveness. Jesus Christ is mercy. Jesus Christ, again, is that hope we speak of alive in us. Jesus Christ is everything I could ever need. And all of what James is doing at the end of the day is giving us a pathway of wisdom that lets us lead and run to Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. If you need anything today, if I need anything today, it's Jesus Christ. He is forgiveness. He is life. He is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He is victory over death. Do you know Jesus? At the end of the day, that's the only reason we're here. At the end of the day, everything in this text is pointing to him and his glory and his love and his goodness and his grace over our lives. Today, if you are here, give your life to Jesus Christ and never turn back, and you will have a difficult journey on the way to heaven, promised in scripture, but you will have more satisfaction than you ever imagined. And the day when he returns, riding on the clouds, you will look up and say, there is my savior. He is mine and I am his. And all of eternity begins right there because the path of wisdom always leads to the path of Jesus Christ. Isn't he awesome? Jesus is awesome. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so let us, let us pray now as we prepare to respond. I just, just consider, again, everything in the word today. Jesus, this is for you. This whole text, every prayer, every song, every, every word preached, it's, it's for Jesus Christ. This path of wisdom points to you. You are ultimately satisfaction, blessing, grace, life, mercy, love. It's you. It's you. And so anything standing in the way of this, Jesus, today, I think you showed us. And now I pray for the courage to respond. To have clean hands, pure hearts, to submit to God. You are smarter than us, Lord. We submit to you. We don't know. To resist the devil, his desire to destroy us. To resist him, the areas of our lives. He's trying to come in and wreck us and ruin us. Yes, Lord, I pray there be a mourning over sin. Maybe for the first time ever. A genuine, eyes filled with tears, a a weeping in minutes or days to come over, over sin that has broken us and to be broken before you and to know your grace. Yes, Lord, to stop tearing down people around us and to say, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's hurting me more than anyone else. Yes, Lord, to humble myself under the mighty hand of God for at the proper time you will exalt. You are near to the brokenhearted. Brokenness is irresistible to you, Jesus, irresistible. And so I pray this this beautiful song in church, I, I encourage you, respond with passion, respond with sincerity, respond with brokenness. Don't think about the person beside you, just you and the Lord right now. You and the Lord. You and the Lord. Me and the Lord. Respond with confession, repentance, love, adoration. Let's make it real. Holy Spirit, lead us. 
lead us to make it real. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we do respond.